From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. What did the people have to say about this year's State of the Union address? I host a panel about social justice and human rights. We're being taken advantage of by these billion-dollar corporations and then being told that we need to sacrifice our health, our livelihoods, and our ability to have a livable earth so they can continue making those profits. They play the American people for dumb. That a spy balloon is really going to be the size of three buses? Who's that crazy? And then they have it shot down by, you know, a fighter jet? On the one hand, he mentions quite little about foreign policy. And when he does, he devotes a few sentences to Ukraine. You can't address the issue of a broken, corrupt police system in America by hiring more police officers and talking about training. Because see, if training would have worked, we wouldn't find ourselves in the situation that we're in now. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, the bombshell headline from D.C. this week is from Pulitzer Prize winning reporter Seymour Hirsch, whose new investigation alleges what we've long discussed on this show, that the United States was behind the September 22 bombing of the Nord Stream pipeline system. Sabotage of the Russia to Germany project created the most catastrophic environmental disaster since records have been kept, meaning the release of up to 400,000 tons of earth-heating methane gas into a world already suffering the impact of the climate crisis. The investigation, which Hirsch published on Substack, alleges that with the authorization of Biden, the U.S. Navy planted explosives last June under the cover of a NATO exercise and with the help of the Norwegian Navy and Secret Service. Then three months later, the explosives were remotely triggered. The White House denies Hirsch's report, even though Biden promised last year that if Russia invaded Ukraine, quote, there would no longer be a Nord Stream 2. And even though several Biden aides or U.S. allies chortled over the destruction of the pipeline, most recently in January, Under Secretary of State Victoria Nuland told Congress that she was gratified that Nord Stream 2 was, quote, a hunk of metal at the bottom of the sea, end quote. A panel of human rights activists I interviewed before and after Biden's State of the Union address wanted Biden to address serious issues such as the illegal expulsion of asylum seekers, police brutality, and climate change. Sikhanik Maupin, executive director of Sovereign Inupiat for a Living Arctic, based in Fairbanks, Alaska, said that the Biden administration has 30 days to turn down approval of a massive ConocoPhillips oil drilling project in the Western Arctic called the Willow Project that would bring at least 219 wells, 267 miles of pipelines, and 35 miles of roads to a vast public lands area. It is estimated that the project would emit more than 280 million metric tons of climate pollution over the next 30 years. What I would say to President Biden is that he needs to keep his word about the climate crisis, taking it serious, that we have no time to continue rubber stamping these projects because it helps him. You know, we see a lot of politics at play, but at the end of the day, we have displaced families. We have those that are already dying of the climate crisis. We have entire villages that are going to need to be relocated. 
And we are the constituents and we need to have a voice in this as well. And President Biden made his campaign off the climate crisis, saying that he was going to take it serious, but he wants to approve a project that would completely undermine all the efforts that this administration has made to help mitigate some of those effects. I'll have more of the people's voices about the State of the Union address, including Professor Gerald Horn, Code Pink co-founder Jody Evans, police accountability advocate Ron Hampton, and immigration attorney Heather Benno later in the show. A strike by a local of the Amalgamated Transit Union in suburban Washington, D.C. is now in its fourth week with pressure building. Thomas O'Rourke filed this report. Members of Amalgamated Transit Union, Local 689, are continuing to strike Loudoun County, Virginia's transit contractor, Keolis North America, despite receiving a last, best, and final offer from the company early last month. Now, in its fourth week, the ATU Local 689 members remain strong and solid in refusing to cave to company pressure while demanding higher wages and benefits. Keolis North America, a subsidiary of the French nationalized railway giant SNCF, Société Nationale de Chemin de Fer, received a $101 million five-year contract with Loudoun Transit in April 2021, when it underbid the previous contractor while combining the previously separate contracts for local and commuter buses. While the company claims its offer is fair or even generous, including an extra holiday on Juneteenth, the workers and their union claim that the company offers the worst compensation in the region, has cut benefits since taking over, and even forced a union recognition election when it refused to recognize ATU 689 as the workers' agent, losing that vote by a 96% margin. The union insists that it is ready to return to the bargaining table, but no date for the renewal of the contract talks have been set. I spoke to workers and union officials at both their picket line outside the Loudoun bus facility, as well as at an informational picket held at the French Embassy in northwest Washington that called for the French government as the ultimate owner to the privatized Keolis North America to accede to workers' demands and settle this labor dispute. Have they effectively locked people out? Well, more or less. I mean, people here are eager to get back to work, I think. It's, right. it's, we would like to be negotiating. They walked away from the table, and as, far, as we understand it, they've been, they've been claiming that they can't negotiate. So, I mean, it's, it's not true. Like, we're out here. We're ready to talk. Yeah, they can pretty much call us anytime and say, let's go. Yeah, okay. They haven't done that. What's your name, sir? My name is Rob. I'm an organizer with the ATU International in France. Matt Girardi of the ATU. Uh, tell Pacifica Radio listeners why you and your fellow workers are out here at the French Embassy on Reservoir Road in Georgetown for the Keolis drivers in Loudoun County. Absolutely. Not a lot of folks know it, but Keolis is owned by SNCF Rail, which is owned in turn by the French government. Um, Keolis has since come over, and what we've been dealing with in Loudoun County has effectively been an extinction campaign. They have not, from the start, they didn't recognize us as a collective bargaining unit. Um, They have made life difficult. They've cut benefits. They're not dealing with us in good faith. So we are doing our very best to go out here, send the message to the French government that having one of their effectively subsidiaries engage in these kinds of tactics is unacceptable. And I'm sure that they would never 
pull this kind of high-handed maneuver in France. Okay. Well, they would have a fight on their hands, for sure. Right? Absolutely. Even, we uh, see how the French strike, and they know how to do it. You know, it seems like it's a it's a accepted standard pattern now for large companies or government entities to try to privatize through private contracts to get get away from uh, you know having too many government employees. I agree that privatization in the long haul has been a disaster. We need to move away from it. We have to make sure that these workers are getting the dignity and respect that they deserve and that so many of their others who are in public sector throughout the entire region are getting. Um, we know that it's possible. We know that especially out in Loudoun County, a county that has the highest median income of any county in the United States of America, that we can afford to do this. For On the Ground, this is Thomas O'Rourke. Following up a D.C. story we reported in January, Jason Lewis, 41, has been charged with second-degree murder while armed in the death of 13-year-old Karan Blake. The teenager was shot and killed after an alleged interaction with Lewis, who said he saw Blake appear to be tampering with cars shortly before 4 a.m. on January 7th. According to police, some of Blake's last words were, I'm a kid, I'm a kid, please don't, I'm sorry. D.C. Police Chief Robert Conti said that Lewis's initial remarks to law enforcement left out key details and that it, it appears that Blake was actually trying to run away back to a car where other individuals who were with him were sitting and waiting. Those persons in the car were not a threat to Lewis. While those two other teenagers yet to be identified were not hit by gunshots, Blake was shot and killed. The fact that the shooter was identified but not arrested or charged for more than three weeks after he shot and killed Blake, enraged the Northeast D.C. community where more than 200 people confronted police and city officials at a public forum, concerned about the killing by an apparent vigilante. And finally, the WPFW Pacifica family is mourning the death of two women who have contributed to the life of the station. Lauren Crest Love, a founding member of WPFW and sister of the scholar Frances Crest Welsing, joined the ancestors on the morning of February 7th in Chicago. On February 6th, the Council of American Islamic Relations offered its condolences on the passing of Zarina Shakir, who produced a show, The Struggle Continues, on WPFW and also produced an interfaith program on public television. According to information posted online, Shakira's funeral services were February 7th at the Islamic Center of Mercer County in New Jersey. And those are headlines. Stay with us.
I call on all of us living here in the United States, the belly of the beast of imperialism, to please pay attention to what is happening in Peru. I mean, I know you guys all are, but everybody else I mean. We're all impacted by the brutal repression of Peruvian people, not just because it is a grave and violent attack on human rights, because it is inherently linked to the larger repression of working people all over the world. Though the Peruvian people's current fight is unique, it is their own fight, it's a fight within a larger struggle that we all share. A struggle against a society that is set up to keep a small wealthy elite up here and the rest of us down here through poverty, lack of resources, and the perpetuation of white supremacy and xenophobia. We have to realize our struggles are interconnected. Here in the United States, when we struggle against police brutality, crushing economic crises, and systemic racism, we're fighting the same system which plunders and exploits our communities in South America. That's why we must stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters in Peru and lift up their demands. Free Pedro Castillo. Close, close the Congress. Resign Boluarte. And rewrite the Constitution. Because though our fights may not be the same, our struggle is one. Thank you so much. For the rest of the hour, what did the people have to say about the State of the Union Address? I'm Esther Averm, producer and host of On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. And I'm your host in the live and virtual studios of WPFW Pacifica Radio. As President Joe Biden just concluded his annual State of the Union Address before Congress. And I want to make sure I have... Uh, plenty of time for my panelists to comment on the speech, to give their reaction to the speech. I'm joined by Gerald Horn, professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston and the author of more than 40 books, including most recently The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. He's a frequent contributor across the Pacifica Network. 
I'm joined also by Jody Evans, co-founder of Code Pink Women for Peace and a member of the Code Pink Board of Directors. She's a documentarian and co-editor of two books, Twilight of Empire, Responses to Occupation and Stop the Next War Now, Effective Responses to Violence and Terrorism, and a contributor to Beautiful Trouble, a toolbox for revolution. Jody also contributes to Code Pink Radio, heard on dozens of stations across the Pacifica Radio Network. She's based in Southern California. Ron Hampton is the D.C. representative for Blackson Law Enforcement of America, the former executive director of the National Black Police Association, and a retired 23-year veteran of the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department. He's an outspoken advocate for policing accountability, reform, and restructuring. And then my two final panelists include... Heather Benno, founder and attorney at Immigrant Justice Solutions based in Albany, New York, and Washington, D.C. Her legal practice provides legal services to broad sections of various immigrant communities. She has organized local and national grassroots actions in many cities and towns around the United States, and she's committed to building a fighting international justice for all people. And then Sikonik Maupin is executive director of Sovereign Inupiat for a Living Arctic. Sikonik was raised in Interior, Alaska, and their organization focuses on the health of Inupiat communities spiritually, physically, and mentally. They have been organizing around protection of the Arctic for more than five years, and they're passionate about bringing forward environmental justice from the Inupiat perspective. She lives in the lower Tanana Dene lands, also known as Fairbanks, Alaska. And before the speech, we did hear from Sikonik and a little bit from Heather around uh, issues related to environmental justice and and also immigrant justice and a little bit from Ron Hampton around justice and policing. So I wanted to jump to Jody and Gerald to give them uh, a chance to speak first Uh Given the fact that we have been in a what we call a proxy war with Russia in Ukraine for almost a year now, and the tab is over a hundred billion dollars, I was really surprised that so much of the speech did not deal with this ongoing war that is costing the American people so much and and also is also not dealing with the ongoing or I guess brewing Cold War with China. So why don't I start with you, Jody? I know that Code Pink has a project called China is Not Our Enemy. And uh, it's been one of the few projects that, that's been vocal in terms of addressing U.S. policy with China. So we heard him tonight say, you know, we're, we've told China that we're in competition with them and not in conflict. But that's not true. And he made some snide remark about you know, they brought the balloon and we took care of it. Well, first of all, they created the whole drama around the balloon was created for the State of the Union. So he could say something like that. So it could look like they were powerful. The balloon, you know, Blinken reaches out to China, says he wants to come visit. They knew the balloon has been here for a year. The Pentagon had said it's no big deal. Um, So then they say, okay, well, Blinken's going to go to China and she says he'll meet with him. And then they're like, oh, but there's this spy balloon here. How the propaganda on the United States people that we would come to a balloon that is bigger than like buses and call it a spy balloon. 
that 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 American people they're gonna they play the American people for dumb. That a spy balloon is really gonna be the size of three buses? Who's that crazy? And then they have it shot down by you know a fighter jet. It's just playing the American people and the pretending like, see, we're strong. We we don't let them play with us. When in the meantime, the United States has circled China with like 43 military bases. We're destroying the entire ecosystem of Guam to build military bases of, you know, we're in, in the Philippines, in the Mariana Islands, in Okinawa, in Hawaii. We're building up a war on China while he's saying, oh, but we're really just competing. So I think that moment of, you, you know, the lie I, I tweeted while it was happening because he said some comment about how the American taxpayer isn't a sucker. And I said, yes, but the U.S. taxpayer played for suckers every day by being lied into wars that take over 50 percent of their tax dollars. Wow. Um, right. You know, so he talked about democracy, but he's undermining the democracy or he's not listening to elections in Peru, where right now the U.S. is funding the violence against the Peruvian people, you know, where they're not listening to elections in Cuba or Venezuela, where we're supporting the violence. I, I don't know. He said something about tyranny. I'm like, okay. what is U.S. tyranny on the people of Iraq? Or the fact that nothing, not a mention about what is happening in Turkey and Syria right now, or that we can't lift the sanctions to help the Syrian people because there was this huge earthquake. It was super U.S.-focused, totally missing any effects of the U.S. government and our tyranny on countries around the world. Mm -hmm. Or engagement um, in the war in Ukraine isn't racist in itself, or the U.S. tyranny on the people of Yemen, where we've killed our bombs, our planes have killed a quarter of a million, but it's it's Putin that's wrong. So it was, I mean, in all the, what it felt like were lies around the U.S., exceptionalism spoken in a different way, didn't point out any of the other things about the United States that are failing, um, including life expectancy is falling. Life expectancy for rich Americans is going up, but life expectancy for the poor is like almost 15 years b below that for the rich. Wow. And it is okay. It, it didn't address the fact that the U.S. is failing at so many things. I think that we can probably pick up on some of those issues uh, with some of the other panelists. But I thank you for that strong song um, first out of the box, uh, uh, Jody and Gerald. I want to go to you uh, for more on Ukraine. I tried to write down some of the comments he made, but there was very little time taken with this war, which is it's, like I said before, we, Americans have paid already more than $100 billion in this conflict. And we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of it, yet there was just not much said about it and the actual course of the war, what's happening right now, and you know what Americans can expect going forward. Well, I think that that was one of the major contradictions of this speech. It was a speech replete with contradiction. As you rightly suggest, on the one hand, 
he mentions quite little about foreign policy. And when he does, he devotes a few sentences to Ukraine. But concentrating U.S. militarily on Ukraine in many ways is at odds with what we have been told is the major U.S. priority, which is the conflict with the People's Republic of China. I should also say that it's understandable to a degree why he didn't focus more on foreign policy, because if you look at the headlines, I'm thinking of the remarks by the United Nations Secretary General Guterres that this conflict in Ukraine uh, could spread. You've had others in Europe talk about it leading us to the precipice of World War III. Uh, it's difficult to speak in these typical remarks about the State of the Union being strong uh, when the entire planet is teetering on the brink of destruction. The other contradiction uh, is domestic. That is to say, many of the domestic policies that he mentioned, that is to say, going after so-called junk fees, a cap on insulin, raising taxes on the 1%, the Republicans will stand as one against those policies and likely their base, which could benefit from these policies, will not make these Republicans pay a price. That's part of the eternal contradiction of politics in the United States of America. And, you know, while you are speaking, I, I wondered if you thought that there was also an omission in terms of uh, Biden's failure to address the attack on black history, the attack on uh, professors, teachers, authors. In, in many communities, the in effect banning of books that talk about the real history of slavery, genocide of, in, of indigenous people and the failure to uh, address that either on the executive level or in Congress in terms of all the rhetoric that was actually spilled today, uh, tonight. I heard nothing about that. Well, if he had gone down that road, it would have just led to another contradiction. Recall that he wound up his remarks by talking about the United States supposedly being the only nation based upon an idea. Presumably, he meant some sort of uplifting idea. But if he had broached the question of depredations against the indigenous that led to the founding of this so-called republic, the mass enslavement of the Africans, uh, it would have contrasted and contradicted that uplifting narrative. So rather than speak to his base, which I'm afraid to say happens to be uh, the black community, uh, he tended to sweep the interests of that base under the rug, up to and including referring to Mr. Nichols, the slain young man in Memphis, as Tyler. He couldn't even get his name properly articulated. Well, so Ron Hampton, I kind of cut you off, you know, as the president began to speak. You were talking about the contradictions between supporting the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act and the fact that through either that legislation or companion legislation, President Biden is uh, calling for the hiring of 100,000 new police officers. And, you know, they they cloak all of that information and with the idea that there would be better training. And but I understand that the, the officers who beat Tyree Nichols to death, you know, had gone through extensive training. And I remember Je Derek Chauvin was actually a trainer. He was actually someone teaching other police officers. I'm talking about the officer who killed George Floyd. So right. I want to 
I wanted you to be able to pick up and just talk about that contradiction and just the kinds of things that that you see that are needed right now, uh, because, uh, you know, Joe Biden on on the campaign trail, I think it was either on the campaign trail or later said something about, you know, why can't you know you just shoot him in the leg? And, you know, this is the type of information and these are the type of statements that he's made in the past and it just seems like you know this is a person who is responsible for so much of the legislation in the 90s that has led to mass incarceration so we're the the administration just seems to be in a real bind here when it comes to uh the issue of criminal justice i wouldn't have have never mentioned the 94 crime bill and he did (laughs) and and you're right it was uh, primarily uh, a mass incarceration bill. Uh, it, it 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 articulated uh, uh, many more ways of giving out the death penalty. Uh, it was uh, it was uh, punishment heavy. The whole nine yards, and it also was about hiring these this hundred thousand police officers. Uh, Joe Biden is not uh, is not a question mark to me and a lot of us because Joe has always been pro law enforcement, uh, his days in the Senate and and all of that. So, you know, we expected that. But you can't address the issue of a broken, corrupt police system in America by hiring more police officers and talking about training. Because, see, if training would have worked, we wouldn't have we wouldn't find ourselves in the situation that we're in now. And. And we haven't effectively dealt with Rodney King, George Floyd, Eric Gardner, and now uh, Mr. Nichols. So, you know, the other thing, the other contradictions that are, are wrapped up in this is that none of that is going anywhere because the Republicans are in, close of the, uh, in charge of the House and they don't want it. And there's one Republican in the Senate who says that qualified immunity is off of the table. Now, of all the things that's in the George Floyd Act, qualified immunity means something because it holds the individual police officer responsible for his or her actions. Some of that other stuff is all right. You know, yes, we need a a, a data bank of police officers. We need a list of them. We need to, so you so they can't be hired from one department from the other. Uh, we need to ban chokeholds. We need to stop no-knock warrants and all those things, traffic stops and all of those things. But the fact of the matter is the real restructuring, the real issues are going to be addressed on the local state level because that's where the problems are. The 18,000 police departments in America I always say are individually owned and operated. They are right. not under the feds. And America has resisted federalizing the police. And that's not going to happen. So there's a lot of contradictions that went on. And I don't know or think that we're going to see anything. From the time of Rodney King to George Floyd, Eric Gardner, and all of them, and bless their families and they're struggling and uh, uh, still involved in reaching out uh, for some type of closure on this issue. But I think we are putting our bet in the wrong pot. Uh, it's, it's just not going to happen. It hasn't happened uh, uh, yet. 
and and so I'm not uh, I'm not that optimistic that it's going to take place at the federal level. If we're going to see anything, we're going to see it at the local and state level with the kind of things that's happening. For example, in Colorado, they were able to, uh, from the state level, to eliminate qualified immunity. Now that that makes sense, and 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 that's gonna that's a, they're gonna think about a person is gonna think about abusing another person when the state or the city or the municipality doesn't support them in reference to their criminal act. That's a huge, huge issue. So we'll see. But, uh, you know, it, it, it sounded awful familiar to, uh, as, these, uh, uh, as these speeches really sound. If you are an on-the-ground listener, and you have not yet subscribed to our Patreon page, please consider becoming a member on Patreon. Help me to continue doing the show. We are an independent production. I am not funded by any big, you know, foundations or anything like that. And we don't have advertising, as you can see. So this is a people-powered project. And if you can assist and you can support, I would love that. You can go to our Patreon page or you can go to PayPal and give. You could also send a check. But if you sign up at Patreon, you'll be on the list to get an email in your inbox every week in terms of the news and you'll get exclusive content. So that's that's the best way. But uh, if you go to onthegroundshow.org to the donate page, it would also tell you all the ways that you can give. I thank you so much. If you're driving through the country on a lazy afternoon, or you're watching your children playing after school. I'm Esther Averm. 
producer and host of On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. And I'm your host in the live and virtual studios of WPFW Pacifica Radio. As President Joe Biden just concluded his annual State of the Union address before Congress, Heather, I heard President Biden talk about supporting a path to citizenship for immigrants. I heard him talk about, you know, the rights for farm workers and and so many of the things that he talked about on the campaign trail. As a matter of fact, some pundits said that this was President Biden's first campaign speech for 2024, if he is allowed to run. Uh, but, for, you know, thinking about the the immigrant rights leaders, immigrants themselves who I've spoken to, uh, interviewed, I know that uh, many of them are to the point where they expect executive action, that the Congress, you know, from the refusal of the the Senate parliamentarian to allow, you know, immigrant rights to be included in legislation two years ago, all the way up to the present, where we are still talking about children who were separated from their parents under the Trump administration still being separated from their parents. This is the most horrific thing that I can think about. I mean, did, did he say anything in his speech or or, or how, how do you look at the position now that really it will take executive action? And if he's not willing to do it, then he's just really kicking the can down the road. Thank you for asking that question. A couple things. I do have to say that nobody will be satisfied with what, what the president said in this speech regarding immigration. Um, There were no commitments to do anything. And coming out of a situation where the Democrats controlled all uh, power in in the legislature and the executive, to not even commit to anything when you're attempting to, like, lead with strength shows that, in fact, I mean, he said it in the beginning, the, the way he led on this on this topic was he said he's making this a bipartisan topic again. He is concerned only with the political compromise and not at all with the situation of people on the ground. And what do we see? We see this administration continuing to roll back fundamental rights and freedoms of folks who should be treated as asylees or refugees at the border, including many black people from Haiti and including folks from Central America, specifically countries that have really been thrown into turmoil and survived the boot of U.S. imperialism. This administration, President Biden chose to use substantial portion of his like small seconds worthy coverage of immigration to tout the fact that unlawful immigration at the border has been down by 97 percent within the last month but he didn't say what he did to do that and he said it was down specifically among cubans haitians nicaraguans and venezuelans so at the same time as he's announcing temporary protection an executive action, which he could have done all along for Haitians in the United States. He announced that right before Christmas, okay? Yet, at the same time, he is turning away all but 3% of Haitians that seek protection 
in this country from the turmoil that is going on right now with the gangs taking over in Haiti and the absolute complete mistreatment and aggression, covert aggression on the part of the United States against Haiti, including the foreign minister to Haiti resigning over that fact. So basically suffice it to say, the only executive action that President Biden has taken has been temporary protected status recently leading up to this speech. And it's clear that um, there could have been a lot more done. And he's really committing to border police in this speech. And that is along the lines of what you were just discussing, increased enforcement. Okay. That's right. That's right. And Sikhanik, I made a couple of notes when President Biden talked about climate change. And he had a lot of really full-blown rhetoric about climate change and how we have to protect, you know, and I thought about you when he was saying, because he said protect the, almost, he, it's almost like his version of saying the, the next seven generations, right? Which I know is what is spoken of by indigenous people. But at the same time, we know that his administration is backing this Willow project by ConocoPhillips in Alaska that will uh, endanger, you know, a pristine area used by indigenous people. It will contribute to climate change. You're talking about a massive fossil fuel project that is not cutting back, but adding to you know, what is happening, not only in terms of pollution and damage to the environment, but climate change also. So I, I wanted you to be able to follow up on your thoughts, you know, um, after hearing his speech. Yeah, I thought that like a lot of the other issues he's touched on, it was a lot of fluff and speaking in a general sense to make us feel better. But in the reality, he addresses the flooding, the emergency recovering um, or, or needing to have emergency recovery of buildings, having all this infrastructure built around climate change. And he acknowledges that it is an existential threat to the human population, but in the same breath says that we need to have oil and gas um, for the next decade, that we need to invest, and that somehow making it um, domestic oil and gas is going to make it better. And when we see record profits from oil companies, um, I believe $400 billion in profits by oil companies together in 2022, but we're shifting the blame on the high oil prices because it's not domestic, because we haven't um, invested you know, locally is it, it, it's really just lies. You know, it's it's stating that we're um, kind of playing the Americans as, as if we're, you know, not intelligent and that we can't see these profits for what they are and that we, during a crisis um, economically, we're being taken advantage of by these billion-dollar corporations and then being told that we need to sacrifice our health, our livelihoods, and our ability to have a livable earth so they can continue making those profits. And... You know, Biden had made promises in his election that he was going to combat the climate crisis and mitigate um, the effects on those that are most impacted, which is going to be BIPOC communities and those without access to a lot of resources. Yet the admissions that he plans to reduce the amount, it would actually be doubled with the Willow Project that is going to have 337 million metric tons of um, CO2 and that is the equivalent to 70 coal plants in one year's admissions in the U.S. If we built 70 new coal plants right now. And so when we look at it in that aspect, we have to wonder what he's talking about. Is he taking the climate crisis serious? Is he 
serious about protecting the most vulnerable people in this country or is he saying it just like every other president and just going through and his actions are speaking louder than his words and i think that uh in the past he's derailed that by saying he's protected the arctic national wildlife refuge which is great but it was this land that the public kind of took as america's you know sweetheart kind of thing and we aren't looking at this other part of land that may not be pristine for people to hike on or to take vacations on, but it's the land that has sustained the indigenous people, the Inupak people, since time immemorial. It is a really complex, sensitive ecosystem that has important wetlands. We have places like Tsukbuk Lake that has the Tsukbuk caribou herd that we rely on, and people don't understand that in villages like Nilkset, 80% of the people rely on subsistence. And that is not just for our physical well-being, which is very, very important because typically the stores that we would outreach to um, charge, you know, $37 for 12 frozen processed burger patties. So it is essential for our physical health, but also for our spiritual health. And it feels as if a slap in the face to say that they're taking care of the climate crisis. Um, But for America's energy addiction um, to oil and gas, we're going to sacrifice people's lives their ways of being and the indigenous people's ways of being that they continuously say they're trying to support so i really think that president biden needs to you know he has a lot of contradictions within this and we have 30 days right now um that biden could overturn and stop this project they just came out with the final environmental impact statement um that is really devastating to read and there are so many reasons why um but he has the power he can do it he's choosing actively not to and he's actively choosing to approve a project that is a human right violation but is also a global threat to our livable earth The way you ended talking about human rights, just it just really reminded me that these issues that we're talking about are really tied together, whether we're talking about, you know, immigrant rights or, you know, the right to not be murdered by police or the fact that our tax dollars are being spent to, you know, murder, drone, you know, make war on people all around the world or either to make economic war on them. 
we only have a little bit of time. So, you know, we couldn't even talk about sanctions and how our tax dollars through this, uh, the way foreign policy is enacted is killing so many people through sanctions, you know, and, and, uh, even in Afghanistan, you know, where we've stolen their money, uh, from their, their central reserves and we've killed so many people in Venezuela and Yemen. And so I wanted to have everyone to have, um, you know, just one minute to just say if there's like an action or there's some type of uh, work that you're doing that you want people to support. I think that our board operator might give us a little slack and uh, we can uh, go up to the top of the hour. So why don't I start with you, Sick and Nick, since you're, you are speaking. Yes, um, right now there isn't necessarily an actionable item um, that's well organized in terms of just signing um, a petition, but people there is you can visit our site tilainuit.org, um, and you can Google Sovereign Inupat for Living Arctic, or you can Google my name and you should be able to find it. Um, but we have a draft letter that you can write um, directly to the Department of Interior, to Deb Holland, and to another representative that is the manager for the Willow Project. Their emails are on our website. The draft letter is there. You can customize it. So we really encourage people to do that because Biden has the power to stop this project. Thank you. Okay, thank you. And Heather, I know, you know, there's so many different pieces to the immigration issue. You know, there's TPS, there's there are particular issues of what's happening with Haitians. There's, you know, the farm workers. I don't know, you know, which one, you know, if there's one to choose, but if you know of any action that people can support. Um, we're Pacifica Radio. We're about action. We're about, you know, people power. And so we don't want to end this broadcast on a on a down note like, you know, Biden has all the power with his lies standing up there tonight. But, you know, what what we're doing ourselves. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, he definitely does not have all the power. I mean, I think we kind of take for granted DACA, the fact that DACA even exists. DACA was completely fought for and won by undocumented youth and families under Obama at the cost of their lives and freedom when they were arrested in his campaign headquarters. And we should be doing the same, and we are. Like, we see every day the undocumented and immigrant families on the front lines of our union struggles, of our abortion struggles, of our local political struggles and national struggles. And I mean, I think in general, to, to take a stand on immigration is to work within your community because you will see that immigrants are such a fundamental part of our community that immigration is a, a fundamental issue that cannot be overlooked. Um, I just wanna encourage people to plug into one particularly useful publication. It's called Breaking the Chains Magazine. We cover, it's a feminist magazine that's socialist and it specifically covers working class women's issues, including abortion, including immigration, and including internationalism, and ties all these issues together. So I just want to encourage people to check that out. You can look at breakingthechainsmag.org and um, truly continue to share out this information because leading into the next election cycle, we have to remember that action, action is really what is going to save us, not just continuing to vote for the Democrats. Okay. Jody, actions at Code Pink? 
We have I have like one minute, so I <laughs> have to go and move it along. Yeah. Uh, this week, it's to send a Valentine to Congress and say, where is the love? Why are you sending weapons? Why are you not, you know, asking for diplomacy? We have actions every week. Uh, you can just go to codepink.org. We've got International Women's Day is going to be calling for an end of war. We need diplomacy and cooperation. Always, always, China is not our enemy. Uh, the administration is driving in a war on China, and the first casualties of that war, we have to remember, are Asian Americans, that that hate is driving hate against Asian Americans. You know, telling the State Department to, um, relations with Israel don't, doesn't help Palestinians and these, you know, hand slappings with, with leaders of uh, Israel where Palestinians are dying every day has to stop. And then also just on the environment, there is no greater contributor to climate change than war and the and the fossil fuels that are used for war. So we're um, calling out environmental organizations to say, you know, Biden, we need you to call for negotiations with Ukraine if you really care about the planet. Okay. Okay. Uh, Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Well, I'm sure the organizations and movements that you're all a part of, our panelists, are part of the means that we have to continue to fight back and resist. Uh, I'm running out of time. I just want to say to our audience that you've been listening to Pacifica Radio's coverage from Washington, D.C. of the 2023 State of the Union Address. I'm Esther Averam. I want to thank my guests on this People's Panel, Professor Gerald Horn, Code Pink co-founder Jody Evans, Police Accountability Advocate Ron Hampton, Attorney Heather Benno, Sikhanik Maupin, Executive Director of Sovereign Inupiat for a Living Arctic. Special thanks to the crew here at WPFW, Kalia Chapman on the boards, Alona Elias, Michael Nacella, Jerry Paris, and Mo Thomas for making sure we reached in good order all the Pacifica radio stations and affiliates broadcasting the show. Wherever you are, keep raising your voice. And that will do it for today's show. Those were my interviews after this year's State of the Union address on February 7th, 2023. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. We're on two dozen stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and on all your podcast platforms at On the Ground with Esther Averam. Our website and archive of all of our shows is onthegroundshow.org. In addition, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and I also link to every show on my Instagram page at Esther underscore Averam. Special thank you to our supporters on Patreon.com at On The Ground Show. The music we played this hour included Harvest for the World by the Isley Brothers, mixed with a speech by Aria at the February 4th, 2023 vigil in front of the White House in solidarity with the Peruvian people. Also, Save the Children by Gil Scott Heron. There is only so much Oil in the Ground by Tower of Power. And our theme music for the show is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace.
say another thing? I didn't mean to take up all your sweet time. 